0: Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Frame and Sequence podcast. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Dewey over the past few years and our conversations and his work has always inspired me. He is one of the great fashion photographers from the glory days of legacy publishing and the height of the supermodel age. He has photographed some of the biggest names in fashion and in Hollywood and is an accomplished commercial and film director as well. In this episode, we talk about his education and early influences in photography, his career in fashion and editorial, and he shares some great stories about working with some of the top models in the 1990s, as well as some of the incredible art directors and stylists of the time. We also talk a bit about his personal style and aesthetics and much, much more. I also highly recommend picking up a copy of his beautiful book, Polaroids of Women. It's a great insight into his work and how he sees. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Dewey. It's lovely to be sitting here with you in uh, lovely Summerlin. Uh, on a gorgeous morning. I'm so grateful to you for sitting down. I've wanted to ask you questions for a very long time. And uh, yeah, very excited about this.
1: Great to see you. Normally uh, we see each other with a group of people. Nice to just have some one-on-one time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'd love to just dive right in and ask you a bit about your background and how you first found photography.
1: My father was a creative director of an advertising agency in St. Louis, Missouri and um busy madman kind of lifestyle and would bring uh, me the only boy child in the family along with him on weekend shoots oh, wow. and I got to visit photo studios from the time I was a really young probably five years old and including trips to California where he would stay at the Chateau Marmont <laughs> to make TV commercials for uh, chuck wagon dog food and. Amazing. See- and then we would go uh, with him to do insert stages and things like that. And so I, I by the time I was probably 10, I could load a Hasselblad and just to be useful around the studio. And I fell in love with the mechanical part of cameras first.
0: Wow. Oh, God, that must have been uh, quite the intro of Chateau Marmont and sound stages. And what, what years would that have been?
1: Um, that would have been, and starting in the early or late 60s like we knew uh sunset boulevard um as kind of a hippie enclave and my dad would walk us uh down to get breakfast me and my older sister would uh, walk down with my dad and get breakfast and people would drive by in cars playing you know rock and roll music and there'd be barefoot uh, blue jean cute people all over the place. Yeah. So, I mean, we loved it. Wow. From St. Louis to, to Chateau Marmont on Sunset, it, I was like, I like it better here.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine <laughs> yeah. so. So obviously it got into you. Yeah. Um, and so in addition, just like loading cameras, were you also starting to shoot or?
1: Starting to shoot, uh, yes, uh, with a fixed lens Minolta 35 millimeter camera that was part, you know, of my dad's kit. And that would be like in junior high school for projects. I would shoot pictures and mm-hmm. things like that. And, and, but I had access to a dark room and a really good friend of the family's uh, named Jerry Tovo, still a working photographer in St. Louis, oh, wow. um, that let me process film, make contact sheets for him, and um, he had good equipment, uh, RC paper before anybody had RC paper, yes. and you know these kind of things. And so by the time I got into high school and yearbook and newspaper stuff, I was already working. You know, I had access to professional studios, bronze color lighting, all this kind of stuff. So I, you know, I would could light something where nobody else in high school had the ability to use an umbrella and a strobe. Right. Yeah.
0: Oh wow, that's incredible. Yeah, that darkroom training is just something you can't replace.
1: It was so useful. I mean, it was the Photoshop of, of that time. At <laughs> the time, right. Yeah.
0: And uh, at that point, were there any photographers who you were really inspired by or looking to emulate or any work you were seeing that you thought you'd like to go in that direction?
1: I really always loved Avedon's portraits, and there was a book uh, that David Bailey did, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Goodnight and Amen, Baby, that was also portraits of, you know, black and white portraits from the uh, rollicking London days of Mick Jagger and the Beatles and Penelope Tree and stuff. I loved, loved those. I liked, uh, you know, the life. book of war photography and uh, journalistic uh, things. And my dad had a great library, you know, so I would dig down to those. And then when I um, I found, uh, hang on, I'll, I'll get it real quick. Okay.
0: Cause I still have it. I mean, your photo book library at a glance just looks absolutely incredible. I'm sure I could spend hours. <laughs> you know, I,
1: and I have like another whole storage of photo books that I have to decide what to do with them. If I, here it is. I'm going to pull all these down because they were really so inspirational from my dad's library hardback Ouija's uh, creative camera by Ouija, which has all these tricks. Look, and here's my dad's signature in it nicks, damn it. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> and amazing. he just like uses all sorts of different tricks and printing tricks wow. and ta- you know, talks about technique through water, how to use mirrors you know, a gallery of Ouija's women. So this thing, this you know, incredible. yeah, the, I love that. Here's another Ouija village thing. And then That's these my dad got there. Uh, Peterson, uh, Masters of Contemporary Photography. Wow. Will McBride. Uh, this one's on Photograph and Sensuality. Amazing. The Photo Essay. Art Kane, the, you know, I, I definitely went through this a lot. Yeah. Um, it was inspired, but this was the gift that I, um, Sort of like the Matt Horanick uncle that I had, Al Benoni, his name was, <laughs> that was always like, you know, hey, you're going to love this thing, I'll push this thing. And, you know, George, uh, my son's godfather is uh, Matt Horanick.
0: Oh, amazing. And he's the best <laughs>
1: one ever, you know? Yeah. Completely. But this guy gave me Galwin's Guide to Glamour Photography, which is a Peter Galwin, this guy that lived in Malibu mm. and shot these California... N- kind of nudie pictures of yeah. girls in the pool and stuff and he named all the models and what lens he shot them with uh, one oh uh, 220 Schneider and things like that and the girl I mean this was the first nudie book that I had but <laughs> I, it was it was a great combination between like you knew the models names you saw them in you know uh, kind of sexy poses and having fun on the beach and then he talked about how to light it what sort you know like the lights are showing some of the pictures yeah. what lenses to use and everything and this i memorized wow. you know
0: that is incredible yeah man i'm gonna have to go down a uh, ebay rabbit hole yeah <laughs> i'll take some pictures after this yeah that is uh incredible uh, yeah i can see how that would definitely yeah have influenced your style as well yeah that's incredible
1: it was like, the, you know, in my, and it was a f- officially a photography book, so my mom was okay with it and everything, but I'm sure she rolled her eyes a little You're bit, like, like oh, Albanoni, why would you give that to an 11-year-old?
0: You're like, no, Mom, it's technical. It's, uh,
1: <laughs> it's a photo book. I need, <laughs> yeah. I'm i studying it's it. It's lighting. Yeah. Well, it's
0: funny. Um, I studied, you know, drawing and painting when I was younger, and it was kind of the same thing. It was just like, well, we're painting the nude. It's like, very yeah. quickly, any sort of like eroticism goes away. <laughs> I know. I, I
1: did uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, that's where I went to school after high school, and all of those drawing classes were, you know, nude models. But you know, some people were like Santa Claus during the <laughs> holiday season, and then a nude model in, you know, February. Completely. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, uh, in high school, did you have any sort of mentors, or um, you were just finding your own way?
1: So Jerry Tovo, who I mentioned earlier. Also had a lot of connections uh, with people in the Midwest that were like reps for uh, Pentex and Nikon and things like that. So I got to meet those guys. And my first real setup was a Pentex MX with three lenses. Nice. And I knew I had a, a, I remember having a a blue canvas bag with with white uh, edging. And that was, probably the, you know, the stuff was lightweight, it was little, it was easy to use, it was all manual, there was, you know, no automatic or whatever. But with that camera, I took a picture of our high school football team, it was for the newspaper or something, as they defeated for the state championship, uh, a team that had a great reputation. And so three of our players are jumping in the air and three of their players are walking off with their helmets down and on the scoreboard at zero, 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 you know, Webster Groves, 26, whatever the other, not, uh, it it was a great uh, descriptive picture of what had just happened. And I won from the University of Missouri uh, Journalism School, the high school newspaper photographer of the year. Amazing, And that came with a $10,000 scholarship from the Kansas City Business Journal. So I was a, that was a you know big, a big moment yeah. for me yeah,
0: absolutely oh that's very cool, and then obviously you knew you, knew you wanted to move forward with photos, so then you, you studied it uh.
1: so then i went to so I went to Washu studying fine art, thinking that I was I more about being a fine artist, and mm-hmm. realized very soon thereafter that the people that I really respected there weren't getting shows, their careers weren't moving forward. Mm. They were working uh, in art stores in St. Louis or at a parochial school, you know? And so I had always been able to make some money in the photography world, and my dad would give me an assignment to go shoot the officers of Mark Twain Bank and um you know and i had uh, there was bands at that time i was interested in music and i was doing you know shots for bands and making 200 and things like that and and also being able able to work at jerry tovo's and and work in his dark room and assist for him you know uh more and more knowledgeable so i thought i think at this stage i need to pursue that rather than keep painting so i Uh, asked around in the three schools that were at the foremost at those days were RIT in New York, Mm -hmm. Art Center in Pasadena, and Brooks Photography Institute Institute in Santa Barbara, California. And Brooks was the only one that was on trimesters. I think that's how it worked. Uh, Brooks was on trimesters. Whatever they, you know, they were more than welcome to have a student like in three weeks. Yeah. So I packed it up, uh, my Volkswagen Rabbit, and I (laughs) drove out with a 4x5 Sinar camera (laughs) to start the process at Brooks Photography Institute, really right down the street from where I live right now, but it took me maybe one trimester, and I realized it was probably four or five generations of guys mm-hmm. that had been trained by somebody in Santa Barbara and they stuck around and they started working at the school then they trained somebody and I knew that there wasn't anyone hiring photographers here. There was just a lot of photographers here <laughs> and they had a submarine and people were like doing underwater photography uh, and you know going on trips to chile to shoot underwater and stuff i was like mm, I, I really want to get back to that galwin's Gu- guide to glamour photography <laughs> so <laughs> i made a, a switch to the art center and um showed my portfolio and they accepted me but it was going to be like three months that i could get into their program yeah. so i lived here in carpentaria where right. i live you know live now but yeah. n- not near the, this so close to the beach but had a couple of great friends that were in bands, started shooting uh, people, and just like making friends and shooting friends and getting that kind of thing rolling and yeah. enjoying California. And then when I moved to the art center, I, it was just full steam ahead. And that's where I met my great photography mentor, Paul Jasmine. Oh. And he changed everything. At that point, I was still thinking like a Midwest person, you know, like yeah. you gotta, you know, gotta know how to shoot some food, and then you, you know, make sure that you know how to shoot uh, tires, you know, and yeah. all these things that are hard to photograph or that would be catalogs. And um, Paul Jasmine was very good friends with Bruce Weber, and oh, he wow. just started showing us all these great magazines and turning us onto this world of editorial photography yeah. and being like. You don't need to shoot tires
0: you don't have to worry about that
1: you could shoot your friends the pictures of your friends are the best pictures you have amazing and he would say things like you'd show him something that was an assignment for another class and he would say i'd never take that picture and you'd be like oh you wouldn't you know you got oh what are you talking about this is a great water droplet shot you know and so uh, even though I was learning technically how to do a lot of things, I really started getting interested in the kind of pictures that I take now, which yeah. uh, I still take, you know, thirty years later.
0: And so what was some of his other advice, maybe that flipped that switch for you, or what was he looking for more aesthetically or conceptually that like wasn't part of the technical?
1: He loved the narrative aspect of pictures, and he liked the fact that. If you could um, enter into a realm where the you were communicating, maybe even sensually with uh, the models, there was something about it that felt intimate Mm -hmm. and real. You know um, that he would hold those in high regard, and he was he had a great eye, still does have a great eye, and could you know would like call bullshit on things that he didn't like and didn't like, and then all of a sudden go. oh this this (laughs) oh you've done it here and he really introduced me and in in his class there at art center he would have working stylists show up with working models and great hair and makeup and then you'd get a little space on a giant stage and there might be 10 other people shooting too and he would be the ringleader and, um, and basically, you know, the whole quality of, what you, of the people that you were working with and you were shooting had just jumped through the roof. And these were all people building their portfolios too. Right. And he had a great relationship with his modeling agencies in town and everything. And people like Bruce Weber came out to the class and talked to us there. Wow. So all of a sudden this world opened up like, oh, this is an industry. Yeah, And uh, I met Lisa Love, uh, who was then the interview editor in Los Angeles. And um, she has been, you know, worked as a editor for uh, Vogue for many, many years wow. after that. And I met Lisa Eisner, who at that point was working for Vogue in Los Angeles. And lots of people through Paul Jasmine's filter, yeah. and, um, and, I, and there was people at the Art Center that were teaching classes, but also art directors for magazines, and they started hiring some of those people out of um, the, those better classes, you wow. know, before we were even done with the school. Wow. So, one That's of my f- first jobs was shooting T-Bone Burnett, famous producer, mm-hmm. does a lot of movie soundtracks now, but he had a, a career as, uh, before that as a performer. So I shot some pictures of T-Bone Burnett playing poker at a, uh, uh, for LA Style Magazine um, at a little hotel in Santa Monica, and he was playing poker with Roy Orbison. And, <laughs> and I started taking pictures of Roy Orbison, and he was wearing his uh, clear glasses, and he goes, hey, no, kid, no, not without the sunglasses on. <laughs> and uh, so, and, and I took that picture, and it ran, and then the next month, or whenever they, the assignments were giving out, Tom Waits said, uh, uh, who shot that picture of T-Bone? He can shoot a picture of me. And then I sh- got to shoot Tom Waits in a little Chinese restaurant in Silver Lake that was near his house. And then he started coming over while I was making prints for him. And he-, he was going on a tour and there was a light that I had there that he wanted to put on the stage. And then he introduced me to Ricky Lee Jones and I did a back cover of one of her albums and then started working with the record companies and you know, getting working my way through magazines for to, from House and Garden when Anna Winter was the editor oh, wow. of that, then getting some assignments for Vogue when she moved over, and I just never had to finish school.
0: <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. Wow, what a, what an amazing experience that must have been, and what a time capsule of amazing people, talent, actors, actresses. You know, oh, Hollywood yeah. was a you know in that weird sort of spot. <laughs> I, I think the thing that was so
1: special about it, when I look now at the context and everything, is there was no digital preview, right. there was Polaroid and the Polaroids that I took were never like with the same camera. I always took them, you know, with a, a big uh, Polaroid with a two-step process, you know, oh, that you pull like that. It wasn't a back? Was and like, no, they uh, had them, but the backs were always so small yeah, and right. they, there was some distance between the lens that they were never really sharp enough to see what was going on. So I took them with the actual Polaroid camera that had the um, Schneider lenses and stuff on right. them, you know, yeah. or Zeiss perhaps. And uh, I still have a bunch of those Polaroids, you know, and I saved them luckily. But there was an intimacy, like you're telling the person, no, no, you look really great in this light. Oh, just step back a tiny bit. And you're really, it's a one-to-one thing. They're trusting that you see something worth pursuing. And it's not like somebody six feet away going like, do you like that background? You know,
0: <laughs> on a monitor or like video, yeah, village, like, even worse on. Concert.
1: Yeah, yeah, where the hairdresser can have more influence in the on the photograph by saying something to the person that you're working with. I mean, everybody used to just kind of huddle around the camera and try to see it from that point of view. Right. And you, you, can say like, we haven't gotten it yet, or we do have it, you know. And and sometimes it could happen that quick, or yeah. uh, you know. So I, I really. Felt like I connected with so many of those people in a different way. Yeah. And many of those people, you just I would meet. Now it's now it's kind of become that again, where I just show up with a camera bag, not unlike your bag, you know, yeah. and show up and um, just say like, oh, I just thought I'd do this, you and me, you right. know. Yeah, yeah. Let's just do this. Is a, this should take about a half an hour, forty-five minutes, and that's how I started right. those kind of portraits.
0: There is a like a lightness to that approach. In terms of like having a giant team show up or like 20 agency people or like
1: and know. every PR agent has a you know a certain group of people that they want to hire or that are attached to the celebrity or you know ha- they owe them a favor or some you know so like all of a sudden if you go like, but, well, I thought I'd bring a stylist and hair and makeup. oh, can we take a, can we pre-approve them and know stuff And, that? and yeah. I was like, you know what? have them wear their own clothes at I'll meet you at the beach and um, I'll be driving uh, a gray car.
0: <laughs> right. We'll see you there. Yeah, ex- <laughs> exactly. So I, yeah, much more my, my speed. Yeah. I was an in-house director, photographer at Ogilvy & Mather for a while uh, okay. in New York, and it was like, yeah, you just, everything had to go through approval, and by the time it made its way back to you, like the, the idea had been killed, yeah. any sort of spontaneity had been destroyed. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's like telling a joke and then having somebody else sort of tell it and then this is the joke and then you hear it like 16 times and you're like, okay, now tell that joke. You're like, it's not funny anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you remember, I I know you started shooting musicians pretty early on, uh, when you transitioned to more like the big supermodels and actors and actresses, uh, was that your just same approach and was there any sort of transition to learning how to work with bigger name talent?
1: Well, I think the bigger transition was uh, being mentored by really great stylists Mm. who, you know, instead of it being, you know, like about Tom Waits, it starts to be about the outfit, you know, that Tom Waits would have on and that transition to the outfit that Christy Turlington would have on or something. So, like, I looked and I, one uh, editor in particular, uh, Carlene Serf, that was at Vogue, Um, very French, you know, and did some of the most classic pictures with uh, every photographer you can think of under the sun, Mm -hmm. Stephen Meisel in particular, but she would always go, don't forget the shoes Dewey (laughs) Nix. And, you know, so like that (laughs) woke me up to that. And I worked a lot with Polly Mellon, um, who had been one of Avedon's uh, stylists and editors at um, American Vogue. She had transitioned to Mm -hmm allure magazine and was doing the fashion pages for basically a beauty magazine Mm. and she was still alive but what a great history she had and really understood clothes and really was romantic about it and had such a great cadence and she'd go when she walked through that door and the blouse was blowing sideways I thought he's found that light that's you know and, and you'd be like thank you polly thank you and it got <laughs> way more romantic sure. and also you were taking you know 10 pictures a day or more likely six pictures a day for two days you know right. um few yeah. extras would get thrown out but i mean it, it wasn't the speed it is now where oh, people God. expect you to do 50 pictures you know right. and
0: you're just they're like hand me the uh, sd card and yeah <laughs> just like Thousands of shots. And there's no
1: rethinking, like,
0: you know, now
1: that the light's bouncing off those windows, why don't we put the longer jacket on and have her by the motorcycle? And then, oh, let's redo it. Yeah, that's a great idea. This would be a perfect place. Now, you know, be a, um, let's redo that shot. That shot's done. <laughs> yeah, completely. We got it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's interesting, like, uh, hearing you speak about it, it, sounds, it feels more like, act, like filmmaking in a way where it's like you're making I, sure you've captured.
1: I thought that the transition to making TV commercials and short documentaries and everything was really easy for me because I was always trying to capture a movement or like in this scenario uh, he's running home because uh, there's a bus in the background. He got off the bus. He's running home to try to get there before five or whatever, you know, like some scenario like that. But you're running up the stairs. So there was some action. So I was already, you know, directing action. Then when it came to like filming, it was like, oh, it's exactly like what I've been doing. But you just right. will come all the way through the shot yeah. and just keep rolling. Okay, good. Oh, that's I didn't film cool. it so much myself as hiring cinematographers. So mm-hmm. I was continuing to, to shoot stills and then bringing cinematographers. And luckily, like right off the bat, c- caught up with um, Lance Accord, like one of oh, the wow. great yeah. cinematographers, but through, had come through the Bruce Weber School. You know, oh, and yeah. shot a lot of stuff for Bruce. He was in a first assistant and then moved into being his cinematographer. So he understood all those processes and working yeah. with the light and working really quick, you yeah. know.
0: I think that uh, just speaking about the stylist angle again, that's something that I've never heard any photographer talk about. So I found that incredibly fascinating that, like, that's now it makes so much sense, though. Like, some of the great photos that makes hundred
1: percent sense that that was the the luck of my career is getting hooked up with people and then becoming like a partner that way yeah because i mean i'm totally attracted to beautiful clothes and i love you know telling wardrobing the shot with beautiful clothes and but it's like Polly Mellon would have a pair of Leica binoculars and she would hold, you know, with just one eye <laughs> and she would be watching while you shot and be like, hold it. Let's move that to the side a little bit. Okay, go. And now I'll hold this. Okay, now. And take a shot now. And, you know, I think that's the way that Avadon told her, like, get in there and touch it and feel it. And I like hairdressers that do that too, yeah. you know, that are messing up the hair and moving on. And the, uh, the idea that the stylist and the hair and the makeup would be in another room while the photographer is shooting, which I find very commonplace now, you know? Yeah, and much. and you're shooting and um, they don't even know what the shot looks like or like what they had in mind for the hair. Did it translate to what that light was like? Right. And I'm, I, I think the best shots I ever did, there's like somebody right there that's like making their part of the shot better. Yeah. Completely. Stylist, you know, most importantly.
0: Did you have a core team that you worked with throughout most of your career and those?
1: I, you know, had great relationships uh, with uh, uh, Ward Stegerhook is a hairdresser that I really loved. And he was married to a great makeup artist, Ashley Ward. Um, I loved working with them. He, and John Sahag, who's no longer with us, was like one of my favorite hairdressers to ever work with. Yeah. And he would do anything, like climb up ladders with a... 600 pound light on his shoulder and things you know he would just do anything to make the shot work and I think he knew David Bailey and came from that school Uh, I gosh, so many people to mention but yeah like you kind of find someone that communicates with you or knows the same film references you know and you're just like hey let's do that uh, vampire walking through the streets of Venice thing and they're (laughs) like oh yeah okay we talked about that yeah Yeah. so
0: that's, that's really cool yeah I find it's you got to be on the same page, obviously. As yeah. Your team. Did you have any philosophies about lighting? Did you like a lot of like added light, or were you more of a natural light like, kind of guy?
1: Uh, well, definitely natural light to begin with. And then I started well working with great cinematographers, and all of a sudden you see their gaffers using lights in ways that I made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, you know, big bounces and mirrors. I, I always would have a couple mirrors and just to throw through a window or something like that. And I am attracted to the idea of some kind of architecture in the frame, even if it's just uh, you know something that helps you. Uh, set up a composition, but also then a light could just really be bouncing off of a hard wall or a window or something like that. I always like that reflected light off of a car window, yeah. and so I would make that happen, you know? And then I started using flashes on cameras at really high, or near cameras, with really high shutter speeds in the Annie Leibowitz Type of world, but I was just more frontal with it, just because I thought it added an edginess that on color film that to me was similar to like a really contrasty black and white print. Yeah. So um, and then I found a little uh, Fuji six four five camera that you could do a flash fill. It had the the flash on the camera directly over the lens, and it shot one twenty film. And so that custom by Dewey Nix has probably half the shots in it are done with that camera. And I would just have that on my hip oh, wow. and, you know, snap it. I called it the snappy, you yeah. know, like give me the snappy. And, and um, so sometimes I even had two of those because it took a second for the flash to recycle. And so bing, ding, 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 yeah. ding, ding, ding. <laughs> ding. And, <laughs> you know, cool. shoot 12 or 24 pictures. I did 222 back in the day when you could get 220 film.
0: Wow. I know Matt Horanick has told me that you guys used to use uh, the Pentax 6.7s. Yeah. Did you like that system?
1: Yeah, I liked them uh, a lot. I mean, unfortunately the uh, shutters were so sensitive, uh, the cloth shutter, that we would just go through them, you know, Mm. like when I first had my very first Hasselblad I got, I had a very personal relationship with. I knew every little part of it. And those things are like tanks, yeah. you know? The lenses are amazing. It was, I, I liked the way it viewed and to have that magnifier. Yeah. And um, and it's kind of interesting because it drops the camera down to a, a lower level that makes people look good, like in terms of proportion, you know? There's yeah, a yeah. lot of things that was posit- that were positive about it. Yeah. Then we got to the... Pentax it's because they wound faster, you know, and, and there's this, uh, and that negative, we probably were chasing Bruce Weber to be quite honest with you, you know, we knew that he <laughs> that had a bunch negative. of, yeah, yeah, had a bunch of those. The lenses were good, but they were sensitive and, you know, the backs didn't always close perfectly well. There'd be a little light leak on some of them, you know, mm-hmm. like you would be like, camera seven's got a light leak on the right inside, oh, t- toss it away, you know. So all of those things, I, I never had the same relationship with the hardware that I did from the, at the very beginning when you knew the camera intimately. So they've become almost disposable right? Um, in my mind. I see, I mean, I know that you guys love all of the Leicas and I do understand collecting the lenses. It does frustrate me that the technology becomes kind of outdated at some point, yeah. right, you know, so... I just kind of go with the canons now because the technology is always really good, and I have so many great Canon lenses that I don't feel like restocking. Yeah, I don't blame you. I mean, I had at one point all these M sevens, like I had three of them with good lenses. Oh wow! But literally, I was so frustrated by how long it took to reload them. Yeah, that. I, probably Matt has, I, mean, I know one assistant, uh, Dave Sanchez has one. Matt has the, the best of the lenses that, you know, I just, I didn't have a, even though I thought beautiful, yeah, just like, ah, eh, forget these things. <laughs> Slow moving. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Do you feel like you had a focal length that you were drawn to mostly? We were 50 guy, 35?
1: I think 35 ends up being the one that I, if I was just going to go and walk around, I mean, I would probably bring the 50 bring the 80, bring the 35, even maybe the short zoom, and then be happiest with just the 35, you know, the fastest 35 that Canon makes. right? Because uh, there's already enough depth of field in just the optics that, you know, when you shoot at 1.4 or whatever, that's when people start going, wow, you're a really good photographer. There's certain (laughs) tricks. Yeah, for sure. And if you shoot 120 film, and people are just like, wow how did you do that? Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's interesting, I've heard a lot of photographers at your level say that they like the 35 because it is more of like, they call it the storytelling lens or, yeah. it's not quite as pers- like in your face as a 50 and it's not wide enough where there's distortion and it just you know, kind of keeps everything.
1: The distortion for me actually helps a little bit, I don't know if everybody likes it, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I think it adds, it's a little creative tool yeah. that you can decide like how to push somebody into it. I'm not afraid to get close with that, you right. know? And so that helps. And the 50 sort of takes some of that away. So there's other things that have to fall in your lap, yeah. you know, for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, completely, <laughs> yeah. 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 On some of your like huge shoots, obviously like in the, in the 90s, you guys were just doing massive campaigns with tons of money and all that. Do you remember a shoot that was maybe the most challenging or the one you learned? like the most from
1: those are two good questions. I know one that was very challenging was for Tommy Hilfiger, the creative director had seen something with black ice and was like, we're going to find a lake <laughs> okay. with black ice and shoot on that. And we went to the Yukon oh, wow. to Whitehorse, and there was a incredible, I'm probably like, I'm uh, just going to guess 40 acre lake. And, w- and they had a crew come and just blow the snow off of it. It was probably t- uh, two feet of clear ice. And um, we shot on that for like six days. Amazing. That yeah, was unbelievable.
0: <laughs> Must have been chilly though. And, uh, oh my gosh. Slipping hazards.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Slipping hazards. And, and there was things like they wanted to get vintage snowmobiles as one of the props. Uh, and so this guy brought these racing two-stroke Kawasaki snowmobiles that were like (laughs) chainsaws, you know, chainsaws that could kill you. But everybody had to ride them. But, you know, like two-stroke, probably like a 250cc two-stroke motor that was so loud and fast. And they were scary as hell. And that was that. I, I just kept thinking over and over again. And then also you'd be on the ice and there'd be like a bulldozer that had pushed snow aside. And all of a sudden you'd be shooting. And the locals, you know, native uh, people that were the ones we were, that were our guides and were making sure we didn't die, be like, nah, it's fine. Don't worry about that. And we're like, oh, oh that one's a little early in the day. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, my God, that's amazing. <laughs>
0: yeah. It must have been fun, though. I, I know you like the smaller intimate shoots, but having massive budgets to, like, amazing you know, execute creativity must be.
1: Especially when it got to the point where I was making the TV commercials and the print shoots. Yeah. And so the you know then the sets became more uh, interesting and three dimensional because the camera would move through them in a different way, you know. So all of a sudden, locations, set design, pre-production, uh, all those elements, and, ca- and casting too. Because you know, if you're taking pictures of some, you, you don't have to love them to take a great picture of them, or they don't need to be, the, you know, foolproof. Right. Um but if you're making the fragrance campaign also and, and there they need to run and roll on the beach or have a love scene with somebody or whatever they and, you know they, you have to make sure that you have somebody there that can really perform and that you don't get stuck right you know with yeah. with someone who's not workable right <laughs>
0: <laughs> i mean it must have been incredible you you were one of the photographers in the like great age of the supermodel which like arguably doesn't exist anymore what was that like that whole world. You
1: know, I, I think the interesting thing is that by the time I got to the, you know, the real super supermodels, they were already very, very savvy and knowledgeable about the process. Mm-hmm. You know, when Linda Vangeliza said, we don't wake up for 10,000, you know, wouldn't, for, wouldn't wake up if it wasn't 10,000 bucks, but also like mm-hmm. they wouldn't get involved in a shoot that wasn't going to be good. You know, right. like there was so... I remember shooting Linda Vench, one time, I think it was for French L covers. We did probably like four in a day or something. And she was walking down a hill, and maybe I had that 35 millimeter lens on or something, and she goes, 35 from there? And I was like, yeah, you're walking down into it. I'm making your legs look longer. And she goes, where do you want, how close do you want me to be? And I was like, I'm thinking like four feet. And she goes, I'm thinking you should use a 50. And, you know, we went back and forth. And it wasn't bitchy or anything like right. that. It was somebody that knew what she was doing. And, like, her, her relationship to the camera had been so extensive that she f- knew that that wasn't going to be good for underneath the chin. Wow. So, I mean, I respect that.
0: Yeah. I guess she knew how she photographed. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. What her best side was. Yeah. Did, uh, did a lot of those models also sort of have in their stipulations, like, you have to shoot them with a certain lens or a certain filter, like some actors and actresses?
1: Uh, No, not really, but a lot of, by the time I got to like Giselle and stuff, you know, like their contracts with uh, uh, Victoria's Secret were so specific that there was a certain amount, a number of shots and things that she would, would do, you know? Yeah. And, um, and they didn't, you know, it wasn't, you don't waste time. It wasn't like the editorial pursuit, but if you were shooting for, a magazine that was going to change, you know, the editorial could change their career or freshen up the book or you know make a big splash. And she knew she was going to get a cover of something, you know, a, a different way of working.
0: Yeah. Did you ever have a favorite uh, publication for editorials or creative director at a publication that, like, you felt you guys just really did some elevated work?
1: Definitely, Jim Moore at GQ was a, a huge relationship yeah. and very supportive, um, and I you know for a long time it would be a uh, story every month or two stories every month and we'd always just check in and you know so that was a great relationship to have how fun i think at allure magazine when linda wells uh, was the editor she kept me in the rotation and gave me trips to japan and worked with um, Polly Mellon a lot and also Lori Goldstein was a great editor. Uh, I, I really respected all of those shoots. Then I had a really long relationship with Max Mara mm-hmm. and Giorgio Godotti and probably for over twenty years, twenty four years, I would do, you know, four jobs a year with Giorgio Godotti and those were almost like editorials. You know, when we would come up with an idea of what a museum or some Marble facade, some something that we wanted to shoot, and he would always get great models. And those clothes I find pretty timeless, Mm -hmm. you know. So I could always invent something that made sense to me, you know. Because in a weird way, it was like shooting a little retro um, editorial, uh, especially if it was the outerwear stuff, which I loved—the coats and things. So that was a relationship that I uh, really respected.
0: Very cool. Must have been so much fun. Great. (laughs) Uh, Did you have your preference? Did you enjoy big travel jobs, or prefer studio setting, or was location more your location? Yeah.
1: Location, but more not always bowled over by the idea of long, long travel, but more bowled over by the idea of having access to cool architecture. Yeah. So, you know, there was shoots I remember from Big Sur that just kind of blew my mind uh, because we'd be in some modernist hippie, you know, dwelling that was like, oh, I can't believe we're here. This is the coolest thing ever, you know? Yeah. But I didn't really care as much that it'd be, you're going to Morocco okay, what are we going to do there? Because if it's just the desert, you know, there's other places that right. are easier to get to. <laughs> yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> Especially back then, traveling with film equipment and how many assistants would you normally take? Three, three.
1: Four, yeah. If I, uh, yeah, no, digi- no Digitech, obviously. Right. <laughs> and Matt Horanick <laughs> was worth, you know, three regular guys. <laughs> <laughs> totally.
0: <laughs> when did you uh, start making the jump to digital?
1: Really late. Like, I think... Um, 2009 oh
0: wow
1: yeah so i kept shooting film and then we would uh digitize film yeah we'd look at contact sheets and then make uh low res scans as edits instead of work prints yeah and then from those scans maybe fool with them a little bit in photoshop i never you really got proficient in photoshop yeah because at that point you know would there'd be hundred and forty five images and so there'd be, you know, a team or somebody doing that. Sure. As uh, m- more and more, you know, then all of a sudden it'd be, why don't we put these five frames together? Why don't we change the head out of this frame into that frame? Why don't we do And so that became very commonplace and at some point didn't play to my strengths.
0: Mm, right. Sort of the antithesis of where you started. Yeah. <laughs> right? um, and even though
1: it is uh, very uh, intriguing to think like, oh yeah, that is the best face. Then I, I think now I look back on that stuff of that era and just go like, uh, I don't like it as much. Right.
0: There's something you can tell is off about a comp image.
1: Yeah, just not, it, it, it doesn't feel heartfelt or lucky. Yeah, 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 completely. <laughs> yeah.
0: There's no uh, serendipity to it. Right. When you were shooting film, did you have a go-to film stock that you liked? or
1: did... I did get into the Fuji... A D100 transparency film mm. which I would pull because it was too bright I like that a lot and then God, I'm forgetting now I think the Coda color 400 mm-hmm. was a really great stock and then of course Tri-X yeah would always be I'd try I, I never really shot plus X I Trix I think there's so much you can do with it, and I really appreciated having a faster shutter speed. Yeah,
0: yeah. I love triax for all my black and white stuff.
1: Yeah, and you can make triax deep and rich, and you know, it. it, it or you can make it look thin and reedy. Yeah, you know? completely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, when you guys were doing film, was there much of a post-production process? Like, were you tweaking colors and prints and whatnot? Yes. Yeah.
1: I worked with Ramesh at the Icon Lab, oh, cool. uh, even when he was in New York way wow. back in the day <laughs> i think at l&i color and everything and he's always been someone i completely trusted um, and still to this day he just did a bunch of prints for a show that i did at the end of last year that were beautiful but uh, but we scanned at the negative and then printed um, on the new ilford paper mm. they're they're bigger you know because now the photo paper they don't make in the sizes big you know big right. enough anymore right, right. So the, the Galleria paper, which I always loved, they make a uh, uh, digital version oh, that's wow. very similar. So that's what we were trying to duplicate the prints that I had made in 97. Wow. So through their um, back room at the lab, they were like, I think Ilford would be interested in, in supporting this project. So we did them all on that. Oh, very cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah. One of the other things I'd love to ask you about is, when did you feel like you found your, your style?
1: I think I found it. I I started know, realizing at Art Center when I would take like my friend who was a male model and his girlfriend, and I'd say like I got to do this assignment at this in the desert, and and I knew them and I was comfortable with them, and I knew what I wanted it to look like. You know, uh, something from the movie Giant. Let's say you know, so, um, but more of a, but a modern take on it, like not trying to make him look like James Dean, but just embodying the spirit of it. Right. But then I would come back with like, forty great pictures from that series, you know, and then I could tell people responding to those things, and they were like, how, how long did it take you to do this? And it was like, oh, we just did it from three o'clock until six thirty when the sun went down, you know, and oh, my God, this is good. And I knew from the response. And then I started, like, I would just bring a box of prints instead of a portfolio. And I'd say, so like, this is the shoot I did last week. And people would be like, wow.
0: <laughs> these idea. are great. Yeah,
1: You know? And so then, um, instead of, like, having some finished thing that was good, like, it's like, like telling that joke, like telling the joke again, you know, it yeah. would be the latest incarnation of it. Right. I, because I was young anyway, and the reason that they were giving me a shot was they were looking for a young guy. They weren't looking for, you know, they knew who Stephen Mizell was. They they yeah. knew who Matthew Ralston was, you know, it's like, oh, but this guy is still in school. Look at these. Yeah. So I could feel the momentum going from there. And then when I finally started doing the like the guest campaign,
0: mm-hmm. which is
1: another thing that they were giving younger photographers a break, but they put your name on the side of the ads wow. and he would take eight pages in Vanity Fair and it would photography by Dewey Nicks or you know, art direction by good. Uh, yeah, Paul Marciano, you know, photography by Doing Nicks. And they had such great girls and those things were totally uh, like film stills. Wow. We, were, you know, the first one we did in Paris and then uh, Palm Springs and then, and I love Palm Springs anyway, right. and then the streets of Hollywood and, you know, then, uh, you know, I did a bunch of the, uh, Hawaii, which I was really inspired by, you know, like uh, mid-century modern architecture and on the big island and stuff. And that's where I knew I could come away with 300 good pictures. Wow. So, I mean, I, I think that helped. Yeah.
0: For sure. And what do you think it was that people were responding to? Just the freshness or the storytelling?
1: I think I was having a lot of fun. Mm. And there was like an energy and a playfulness that was diametrically opposite of the heroin chic, you know, that was on the tipping yeah. point of Europe. Yep. So I wasn't taking myself so seriously. And I looked at all those things as like these great opportunities, but it never occurred to me not to have fun. And then I was mixing a lot of those like snapshot cameras in with more, you know, with the six by sevens and things like that. And sometimes just those little snapshot moments, you know, sort of bridge the gap between what would have been like a Martin Parr picture and, uh, um, you know, something that was more of an Ellen Von Unworth picture, you know?
0: It's funny you say that, like the pictures that people respond to most of mine are not the one that like I got up early for, like planned out. It's the one I took like, you know, after a Negroni at lunch and like I'm on my way somewhere with a snap camera. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then, and <clears throat> there's something that I don't know, authentic or just different than their pictures.
0: Yeah. Um, do the pictures from that first desert sheet still exist? The oh yeah. There?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I still have some of those that prints around.
0: Fun. Those would be fun to see did you uh, did you enjoy the directing side of things at all?
1: I love the directing side of things. I still love to do that, but I realized I did make a movie in um, 1999, and it was the process w- was so long that it wasn't. It didn't play to my strengths. Hmm. And the um, slackers, was, Slackers, yeah. yeah, I have seen it. and uh, and um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad that uh, it was on Comedy Central later. And and there's a there is a generation of people that did get to see it. Didn't do well at the theater, and it just took a year to do it, you know. And by the time it came out, I, I you know I I really was interested in getting just back to th- projects that you could physically manipulate, right. you know, um, and have more a- impact, and then on to the next project yeah so it's short stories versus novels you know yeah. and i definitely didn't want to write another novel
0: right <laughs> it's a very laborious process yeah i can tell you somebody who's <laughs> spent last decade just pitching scripts i'm like how does anything ever get made like how does anyone you ever know how many development yes?
1: deals and everything that i had and it'd be like no you have a meeting at over at sony and you gotta t- and you just go like without Adam Sandler, without Ben Stiller, without you know somebody now that's committed to this, yeah. these meetings are just going to be another sit around and bullshit session. For sure. And I can't plan my whole week based upon two meetings, you
0: know. Followed by two hours of traffic each way.
1: <laughs> just absolutely, you know, it started to drive me a it. little nuts. And yeah. and um, luckily, I could resort to going back into and it was like american eagle i think i did uh, for two or three years with just a whole posse of young basically like college athletes and you know young actresses and stuff nobody that was a uh, name brand yeah but it was so much fun to have a little repertory company and to to know that you were going to do you know six days a month for the next two years
0: oh how fun is that great yeah it's just like yeah It's very cool. Have you ever seen the other side of the wind, the uh, Orson Welles movie? Yeah, I I I love that. Me too. As you were talking about your photo shoot in the desert, I feel like you probably really love that movie. I love Orson Welles. I I love Orson Welles. I think he was like the best indie filmmaker like of all time.
1: Who just happened <laughs> to make maybe one of the greatest movies ever at the very beginning of his career, right? And, and then he, even get, he was
0: then it, couldn't get financing. Yeah, line, which is like hilarious. But I, like.
1: I love you know. For me to go to sleep, I listen to podcasts and things like that, and um, I don't need to watch anything. I just like to hear it, you know. And f- tracking down old Orson Welles oh, interviews. Yeah is, his voice is superb, you know, Yeah. anyway, and what he says is always so funny, oh, it's and, amazing. and so I, I listen to Orson Welles, you know, look, talk so funny, about yeah. things. Yeah.
0: Actually, I have a whole YouTube playlist that Channel I'll kind send of, you guys, yeah. uh, or send you, um, maybe I'll link it in this podcast, too, of just Orson Welles, because, I've, you know, there's a, an amazing book, too, called, uh, I'll bring it to you, called My Lunches with Orson. Oh, great. And you would absolutely love it.
1: Do you have one of those Polaroid books? No. Oh, uh, let me give you one of those.
0: Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about some of that stuff. Yeah. Oh here you got you. Oh my so god. that, that was you. a That's would, a treat.
1: Do you know Tom Adler, the book designer that yeah. did Yeah. So wow. he's a friend of mine and I showed him all those Polaroids that I found. It's like seven thousand oh Polaroids. God, is... And he kicked it back to me and said, Okay, I I designed it. It's just women, you know? And so some of them are famous and some not so famous and a lot of the shoots we're talking about are Oh my are,
0: god, this this is spectacular. I mean what an what an archive you must have just of everything not, let alone this book I'm holding. It's just incredible.
1: I know. I got to really, you know, like, it was in a bigger warehouse down in Ventura. Mm-hmm. And um, like everything else, uh, the space became more and more and more valuable, you know? Yeah. As breweries came in and other things, yeah, you know, totally. and it kind of like got retaily. It was the perfect place for 10 years. Big. 2,000 square feet with a bathroom. Wow. And I had the stuff laid out where I could really get to it. And I had to you know, what? the minute the COVID restriction was over, the landlord was like, the rent's going up 300 times. And I was like, oh, <laughs> geez. Like, all right, I
0: guess I'll move on. Yeah.
1: So anyway, I, I had to go through it, you know, reorganize uh, for a smaller space. And, um, and at some point think like, all right, my kids aren't going to ever do this, yeah, you know? Like, right. and unless these things are digitized and and categorized. Yeah. How are they gonna ever you know, like right. how is there about any value to this? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I was thinking like, okay, is it better every month to buy fifteen hundred dollars, you know, worth of Apple stock and <laughs> not have this? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Over the long haul. Yeah. <laughs> Some Tesla thrown in there. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, just, it just goes NASDAQ and
0: so, I, I was actually, I went to NYU for film and then was a photo assistant in New York in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. And it was like probably, you know, the end of like the amazing shoots. But like, I just remember like I would walk to Soho where all the amazing studios were and it was just like, you know, models everywhere. Th- there's just an excitement in the air of like creativity happening. Yeah. And like cafes that are gone and just, there there's just this vibe in the late 90s, early. 2000s in new york
1: it was like a campus
0: yeah it really was and yeah.
1: then you got to and you would go to um, the studio and know pretty much everybody you know yeah and also i always the labs were a gathering place especially when you had to go judge your clips or whatever right and um you know everybody so at some point Either the person had a great first assistant that could judge their work, mm-hmm. or you met the photographers as they were looking at the clips, you know? Right. It doesn't exist anymore, no. you know? Like, you can't, nobody shares that space. Yeah. Uh, maybe at a studio, you know, perhaps. you. But even now, people keep their doors shut and they don't want anyone to see what their lighting looks like and yeah. all that other bullshit. I, yeah. <laughs> it's
0: like, yeah. that's what's always funny to me. It's like, yeah, there's no community of, like, shared Stuff like I feel like in the film community, amongst cinematographers, everyone's like, Yeah, this is how I lit this. It's like, yeah, big deal. And then photographers see how cinematographers light stuff, they're like, Oh my god, like I didn't know this was a thing, or like,
1: right? American cinematographer, they would, you know, have a detailed uh, description of how they lit it and yeah. what exact lamps they used and yeah. everything.
0: But even those old studios in Soho just like fl- took up an entire floor of like creaky old wood, I got, like long gone, I'm sure, yeah, just, like because of the real estate alone, yeah. <laughs> And the smell of, like, photochemicals in the air.
1: <laughs> Definitely loved certain studios that I think there was one called Big Sky Studio that was on 34th mm. that overlooked the, the west side. Um, yeah. Was that in that big building? Yeah, there? yeah. yeah, yeah. I, Bad I, elevator, good studio. I assisted a guy in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A,
0: a dinky small studio, not yeah. one of the big ones. But um, So you actually you lived in New York City then, right? Yeah, I lived
1: yeah. on 36th and 9th first in a great building that had a lot of artists and um some Jenny Capitan who was a big editor and the the woman that came down the staircase nude with a broken leg and the (laughs) Helmut Newton photograph that was her amazing I inherited that apartment from a great uh, creative director Lloyd Ziff who's a photographer now and um, he left 3,000 albums and all of his old magazines that, you know, because he moved to someplace in Brooklyn and he didn't want them anymore. I guess DVDs had come in or something like that. Wow. So it was this beautiful two bedroom apartment with 3000 albums and a wall of magazines to look at that were collected by a wonderful creative director. You wow. know, And That's I was okay. just like, I mean, I just put a couch in there and <laughs> that was pretty much it.
0: Yeah. One of the other things I'd love to ask you about is you have such a distinct sense of personal style and aesthetics and just sitting here in your home like obvious massive level of taste <laughs> where did that come from or was that always just something you were into I th- well
1: my I think my dad had really beautiful taste you know and and um, shared things that he thought were pretty even with his library you know mm-hmm. like so there's all, always was a reference that I could find and I was trying to think of I loved, when I found Palm Springs, it really spoke to me because I love the Rat Pack. I love the idea of people um, recreating and I loved uh, the light in the mountains and the sand and the cool cars and you know streets that didn't have big overhanging buildings you know, yeah. and the sky available and stuff. So the, I got hip to mid-century modern architecture in Palm Springs and using it as a location. And it, I became more knowledgeable about it and architects. And my first house was uh, an Irving Gill home in Hollywood that was from 1917. Nice. So like the grandfather of the modernist mu- movement, you know. The same time, the Schindler, it was actually older than the Schindler House, wow. all concrete construction and everything. Beautiful. And I shot there as like a studio.
0: I, I did some research last night and saw some pics of that and was reading that New York Times article about you taking over the house and how, oh, yeah. how cool that must have been.
1: That <laughs> was fantastic.
0: Yeah. And just your personal like dress and aesthetics and stuff like that.
1: I mean, you know, loved Burt Backrack albums. Uh, yeah. I think it, it kind of like chased it from that side a little bit too, you know. Completely. Of,
0: I was reading that thing uh, that Matt Horanick had written up about your love of Gucci loafers. Oh, yeah. (laughs) How did that come about or how did you uh, make that your signature look? That's such a great question. I wonder how,
1: I loved, I, I know, there was this, when I was in St. Louis, I went to camp with this kid named Tino Trova and his father was this guy. Ernest Trova that very famous artist from the Midwest that did the Falling Man series and if you look uh, you'll recognize it as like a 70s icon Mm -hmm. thing and um, so Tino wore Alden penny loafers as like a 12 year old (laughs) and I remember thinking like god Tino's so cool those are awesome so then you know he was like a preppy kind of kid, but with like an Italian preppy kid and very, very good with, you know, socially hysterical. And and I really looked up to him. And so I got hip to the idea of the being preppy, but a kind of a hippie European, you know, prep. That's got to be where the Gucci thing came in.
0: (laughs) So good. (laughs) Was there a particular era or year of, uh... not that you were doing it, but like, I think in the article he mentioned you liked a specific...
1: Well, but, but I think uh, when Tom Ford first took Gucci over, probably mm-hmm. he wasn't such a name brand either, you know, they right. were just finding somebody. But all of a sudden, the, he was, I think, I, mean, I could be wrong, but I think he reintroduced the Gucci loafer in cooler style, you know, like the old school Gucci loafer. Yeah. And I know that the first time I saw the brown chocolate suede, I was like, Oh, yeah, that's awesome. You know, and I just jumped in yeah. with uh, the deep end of that. Amazing. And then, you know, warm them on the beach and warm them uh, just everywhere like I would have a pair of uh, Stan Smiths. Right. And the, they kind of looked good when they got beat up.
0: Yeah, I feel like things like that often do.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like,
0: a little, T- you Take a the little, piss out of them yeah, a bit. Yeah, a little yeah. life to them. Um, that's, do you still wear Gucci's? Yeah. Very cool. Um, do you mind if I ask you just some like rapid fire yeah, sure, questions yeah. and then we can okay. wrap it up. Any Palm Springs uh, secret places that you love, restaurants, um,
1: It's now? not completely secret, but Melvin's, uh, you know, we knew Melvin and I still think that I love the tableside service and the actual venue uh, is great, you know. So I love that. and. Um, the thing that I think that a lot of people that go to Palm Springs don't do that they should do is take that tramway up the mountain. You know, yeah, the, I've done it, it. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It really is. There is actually a Burt Bacharach album cover of him in that tramway <laughs> with like a Shirley jacket on.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> spectacular. <laughs> um, yeah, I, we actually stayed at the hotel Melbourne. Yeah, at um, why am I blanking on the name of it? Melbourne's um, wasn't open sadly because of yeah, COVID. But
1: uh, what's it called?
0: The Ingleside. Yeah, yeah, gorgeous old estate. Yeah, stunning, it's,
1: and it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah.
0: so good. How about favorite old school LA restaurants?
1: Musso and Frank, for sure. Yeah, I, I love Musso and Frank. And uh, where else do we love to go? Because now every time I go to LA, I just go to the same restaurants. I mean, I still love to go to the Tower Bar. Mm-hmm. And uh, where would Steph want to go if I took her to LA? It was always Medeo's, which they're open again, but they had that subterranean on Medeo on Beverly, on Beverly that was, do you know that Italian place? No, I have to check that out. so good. They reopened, it may not be in the same location, but um, it used to be in the, uh, uh, the building is called the ICM building. um, That's uh, between Robertson and uh, Doheny on Beverly. Cool. Medeo, fabulous. Check that out for sure. Do you
0: have a favorite cocktail?
1: I do like the Negroni. I do like a gin martini. But lately, I've just really liked Rosé Champagne.
0: Mm. Man my own taste. Yeah. <laughs> we had them. one to the other I had the three, one the other day when yeah. we were at the... Yeah. Three-eye uh, rotate, yeah. so I think. Um, do you have any uh, travel essentials that you take every time you travel?
1: Oh, that's... Uh, uh, yeah. of uh, Cordobin loafers. <laughs> nice. I like... I'm really into this uh, suit that Jay made for me that Matt helped put together where we bought... Uh, a gray seersucker, Matt washed the 16 yards of it or whatever Jay needed, he washed and dried it for me and then um, Jay cut the suit after it had been washed and dried. So now if it gets dirty or wrinkled or whatever, I can wash it in a washing machine and hang dry it. (laughs) so good. It's so smart. And it's like, I think, and everybody responds to it in a really positive way, especially with a pair of loafers. No socks. (laughs) Amazing, I love it.
0: (laughs) Do you have any favorite movies or TV shows that you keep coming back to or influenced you over the years?
1: Mm, So many documentaries that I love. TV shows, uh, I watched The Sopranos all over again in COVID with my son, George, and I just was amazed on how fascinating that show is, yeah. even the second time around. And it's kind of interesting, it doesn't really age because it was kind of already a little reminiscent. you know. Yeah. Uh, and I love the American Masters series from PBS. Mm-hmm. I think every one of them is well worth watching. Yeah. Very inspirational. What else is I'm having I I can't go deeper but I'll think no, about no, that that's for a second. Yeah.
0: Quite right. Which your go to camera these days do you travel that you might travel with? Or? Well,
1: uh, so one that I always have is one of the little Sony uh R X one hundreds, is that oh, what yeah, it's called? Yeah. Um, which has the flash built into it and will sync with, at at two thousandth of a second. Oh. Um, So, many, many times, I'll just bring that, even if I'm just scouting or I have an idea that I'll take photographs, but I like that combo.
0: That isn't a nifty little camera. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's got a Zeiss lens on it and everything. Uh, It's the, the, uh, unfortunately, the the chip isn't full.
0: Right, I think it's like a one inch chip or something. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever shoot film anymore?
1: If I did shoot film, I would shoot uh, 120 with contacts uh, uh, cameras. I still have a bunch of those that work really well.
0: Oh, very cool. Yeah. I've never dabbled with that system. Six, four,
1: five. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That glass is beautiful.
1: The Glass is beautiful. They work really well. They even have an autofocus mode, which I find handy, but it's, you know, all, uh, mechanical. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think those lenses were actually the same ones. They ended up making this super speed cinema lenses. Yeah. It's the same glass and coatings. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful stuff.
1: I still shoot those the Polaroids too. I have. I bought, oh, I was
0: gonna ask you. Do you uh, you still have the Polaroids with the Schneider lenses? Yeah,
1: I, I have. I think I gave one to Clara Horanic. Oh, nice. Um, so I might be down to two. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> when she graduated from high school, I figured it was the the godfather. I, I I would just be the honorary godfather, but I gave her a bunch of good cameras that I had for, to shoot film because nice. I think she's a good photographer.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I mean. How things come back around, I suppose. Yeah, the younger generations loving film again.
1: Exactly. I did work with some kid recently that had dropped out of Pratt and everything, and he was kind of dogging the photography program and saying like, you know, I'm j- I really just I shoot film and I I find people and situations. I shoot natural light on film, 35 millimeter film, and he kept the film, and he like I, I'm exploring you know different ways to process film, and I was like. Sam, you know who used to shoot film? And he goes, no, and I go, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> <Completely>. <laughs> that is so funny.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, what do you think about the state of, you know, photography, advertising, media, you know, image making at this point? Like, do you find things that still excite you or do you feel like there's just an oversaturation of images?
1: I mean, to be really honest, I travel through imagery on Instagram more than any other way. I mean, it's, I, mean I love the William Brown and uh, Yolo, and I. but I don't go to bookstores and magazine stands like I used to, but I enjoy flipping through, and I follow a lot of people on Instagram because I'm excited about the imagery, you know, and, and I mark the ones that I like and yeah, everything so. like that. And then that might lead me to go explore, you know, like their website And I don't think, you know, I don't think websites matter really anymore. You know, I can see people just put up a few, it's kind of a marker, you know, like, (laughs) so that was, that's even a change because everyone's website designer, photographer's website was such a big deal forever. And every agent, you know, would just be like, well, your website is the problem. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't, it wasn't like a flash
0: based website.
1: Yeah, Yeah. And so... Uh, yeah I still love and hunt in imagery and and I'm glad to stumble on to a great show of somebody's work uh, you know in a museum space or gallery space uh, and I that's almost like going to church for me yeah you know totally and I uh, just to say I don't go to church that often <laughs> but uh, you know so uh, that's always lovely and yeah, it's, it's changed so greatly that uh, it's, it's interesting because when I first got into it, album covers were so inspiring and influential to me and looking at listening to an, an album and just looking at the pictures that were chosen for it, you know, and yeah. thinking, you know, that how much they uh, connected to the tone and of the music and the artist. And then when DVDs came, that relationship was gone, but... MTV started coming in, so then you could. There was something else that you could watch, but it's not the same thing as looking at a big twelve by twelve, right. you know, picture. So unfortunately, I think that's my relationship now with a lot of photography, that the, you know, I, the books and everything are less important because if you have to do an image search, you go to a, you go to a computer or Google image search, you right. know, or Instagram or whatever, and. So the relationship that I've had with books hasn't continued even though I have books that I go to for, you know, for my own pleasure yeah. and to really uh, look at people's quality and um, thoughtfulness. Yeah. You know? But I, I kinda, now it's like at the same relationship I have with albums. <laughs> I'm not really likely to buy a new one as much as I am to pull out you know, a yeah. Bill Evans and just sit there and take it in again. Yeah,
0: yeah I'm kind of the same way. I, uh, I have my, like, Five or six photo books that I just reference often. Yeah, that's kind of it. <laughs>
1: I love them when they start to like the when they really start to fall apart, and you have to care for them in another way. And it's like, oh, I should probably get another copy of this. And go, no, that, that, this, it. this is it. Yeah, it's funny.
0: I have a, a one of those is a book of precise night work and. Paris, yeah, it's like totally. It was just they use bad glue or something, so yeah. like the pages are totally falling out. <laughs> that that
1: David Bailey one that I loved is is basically like a portfolio <laughs> held together by two pieces of cardboard. Yeah. yeah, all right.
0: Well, I think that's that's kind of it for questions. Is there anything you feel like we didn't cover or you'd like to? No, that was anything fabulous. I I was forgetting.
1: I I think that was pretty. Okay. Yeah.
0: No, this was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. I really really appreciate it. Oh,
1: my pleasure, man.